book of Acts chapter 12. Today is a little bit of a unique sermon, at least for me. Because the passage we are covering is so short compared to most in Acts, we're really only covering about five verses today, which is much shorter than usual. It gives me a little more freedom in my introduction, so so it won't be shorter if you're wondering about that. It will still be the same length. But the beginning of the sermon, I'm going to do something a little bit unusual. We're going to focus on uh, some history for a good bit of the beginning of this sermon. And there's several reasons why I want to do this. Number one is because the short passage gives me leeway. But the second thing is, I don't know about you, but when I read the Gospels and Acts, I never can remember which Herod is which. Does anyone else get with me on that? I never remember. There's all these different Herods. Herod's name is mentioned 40 plus times in the Gospels and Acts, and there's all five or so Herods, and it's just hard to keep track. So, I wanted to spend some time, extra time, going beyond our passage, just sort of laying out a little bit about the Herods of the Bible. And Ian has found a way for me to write on the screen, so I hope this works. Did it work? Okay, we got a line. Okay, so I'm going to try to do this real quick. And so, Herod the Great is the, is the father Herod in the Bible. This is the Herod who ruled for decades before the birth of Christ. He was the Herod alive when Jesus was born. This is the Herod of Luke 2 and Matthew 2, the Christmas story Herod. This is the Herod the Magi visit, and this is the Herod who uh, kills the babies in Bethlehem uh, as Jesus is escaping. Now, a few things to note here. This, this son of Herod, these are the four sons of Herod. He had more, but four that we care about. Aristobulus there was executed by Herod when just before Jesus was executed. He, w- he was destroyed by Herod just before Jesus was. And the other three sons of Herod ended up after Herod died, they split the kingdom amongst themselves and Herod's sister. So, have you ever heard the word Herod the Tetrarch? Tetrarch meaning one of four regions. And so, if you look here at the promised land, you can see how I believe Herod's sister had this small portion down here in the corner, but Herod Archelaus had this large section here, including Bethlehem and Jerusalem. So, you may remember in the Christmas story, when Mary and Joseph are coming back from Egypt, and they're going to go back to Bethlehem where Jesus had been born, but they find out Archelaus is reigning over that region. So, they go north back to the hometown of Nazareth, just up there, just out of the region, uh, into the area of Herod Antipas, and he was less threatening to them. And so, they went back to the hometown of, of Nazareth. You can see here, Herod uh, Antipas has that region, and then Philip, you may have heard of him a couple times, the New Testament has that purple region at the top of the map. Now, Let me just sort of walk through a few more of these people here. So, Herod uh, Antipas, this Herod right here, the son of Herod the Great, he is the Herod that you hear about during Jesus' adult ministry, Herod Antipas. This is the Herod who locks up John the Baptist in prison and then later has John beheaded. This is also the Herod, Herod Antipas, who Jesus appears before uh, in Luke 23, right before His crucifixion. Jesus stands before Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas mocked Jesus. He put some, some mock robes on Jesus. He expected Jesus to do a magic trick, a miracle, and then Jesus was silent, and so He made nothing of Jesus. He showed contempt to Jesus and sent Him away. Now, why did Herod Antipas lock up John the Baptist. Well, just track this. This is a little bit disturbing, I will grant you, okay? So, if you follow, Herod the Great has this granddaughter, Herodias. So, Aristobulus gives birth. He has Herodias. Herodias ends up marrying her uncle, Philip. You say, that's not right. 
That's correct. And that is not right. So Herodias and Philip get married, and they have a daughter. And then over time, Herodias leaves her uncle Philip and goes to her other uncle and wants to marry him. You're saying, this is really not right. That is correct. And so John the Baptist stands up and says to Herod Antipas, it is not right that you have your brother's wife. You need to repent and send her back. This is not right. And Herod did not like that message going public with a very famous prophet. And so what happened was um, Herod Antipas and Herodias become very angry. They lock up John. And then, now follow this, Philip and Herodias have a daughter. The daughter goes and dances provocatively in front of Herod Antipas, her uncle, while he's drunk with a bunch of men, and he's so pleased by her erotic dance that he says, I will give you whatever you want up to half your kingdom. She goes back to her mother, Herodias, right there, and says, what do you want? And she's like, I am sick of what John says about my choices in life. Let's have his face, his head on a platter. And so, uh, that is the connection there. Now, follow me here one more time. Herod the Great has Aristobulus. When Aristobulus is in his 20s, he's given birth to Herod Agrippa and Herodias, Herod the Great has Aristobulus put to death uh, a few years before Jesus, about seven or so BC, because he's jealous of his throne. Makes sense why he killed the children of Bethlehem. He killed his own children. He wouldn't stop killing someone else's children to protect his throne. But Aristobulus, although dead, has Herod Agrippa and Herodias. Now, Herod Agrippa the first right here, that is the Herod in Acts chapter 12. That's our Herod in the text today. And like father, like son, like grandfather, like grandson in this family, the sins of the fathers are visited on the sons to the third and fourth generation, meaning the habits of the father are passed down to the sons. And the kind of evil and murderousness and the ruthlessness that you see in Herod the Great is marked out across his family for generations to come. So Herod Agrippa, just for the sake of the future in Acts, Herod Agrippa I has three children. You can see them at the bottom. Herod Agrippa II, who shows up later in Acts, Bernice and Drusilla at the bottom. Now, when Paul is on trial later in Acts, he will appear before all these different people. And just to make this even stranger, you're like, you don't want to know this, but Herod Agrippa and Bernice, although brother and sister, there is rumors about their relationship. I'll just put it that way. And then Drusilla marries Governor Felix, who had Pilate's old job. So Felix is the new Pilate, the new governor, and Drusilla, the daughter of the Herod in our passage today, marries the governor Felix. Now, if your mind is not already turning to mush at this point, let me say one other thing about Herod Agrippa from our passage today. Herod Agrippa, when his father is killed, he is four years old. It's just before the birth of Jesus, right? His father is executed by his grandfather, Herod the Great. He's four, and everyone is terrified that Herod the Great may kill his grandson too. So they send Herod Agrippa to Rome to get away from his dad. His dad soon dies after that. And what does he do in Rome? Well, because he's from royalty in a sense, he ends up uh, becoming part of the royal family in Rome, Caesar's family. And two of his childhood friends become two emperors. Caligula and Claudius are the childhood friends of King Agrippa I, which is why later when crazy Caligula becomes emperor, he promotes Herod Agrippa to becoming a king. And then later after Caligula is replaced with Claudius, who's the emperor in this part of Acts, Claudius also elevates um, Herod Agrippa even more. And so if you look at this map right here, on the left is Herod the Great's territory, all those colors there. And on the right, is the grandson's territory. It's almost the exact same territory. He's been able to regain not just a tetrarchy, not a fourth. He's now got the entire kingdom of his grandfather, and that's where he's at in Acts 12 when he is struck down. You think I'm done? I have a few more things. 
So if you look here on, uh, let me go back to this map. If you look here, you've got Jerusalem down here, and you've got Caesarea where this story takes place on the coast, and later in the story you will notice up, the, up here, Tyre and Sidon, representatives from Tyre and Sidon up north are going to come south to Caesarea in the story today. And now I want to zoom in on Caesarea from a satellite perspective here. If you can see this, Herod the Great built this wonderfully huge harbor that went way out into the sea like that. It was a wonder of the world at the time. No one had ever done something like that. But if you look over here, you can see an amphitheater and a palace. The amphitheater is right here, which is where today's text actually takes place in the amphitheater as far as we can tell. And Herod's palace went out into the water, that little spot right there. And today, if you look at this place, here's what it looks like. You can see the amphitheater today, or as it looked back then, reconstruction, and you can see the palace of Herod, and you can see the remains of the palace today right there. Now, I'm going to give you another word about the palace. If you look up, this is an artist reconstruction. This is going to factor in later in Acts, so I'm going to go ahead and tell you now while I have it on the screen. The, the, you have the um, upper part of the palace, which has this courtyard right here. You have this massive lower section of the palace that had an Olympic-sized swimming pool in the base of this thing with fresh water taken from 10 miles away on an aqueduct to fill up his massive pool in the back. But this I just learned this week, and I just find this stuff interesting. This area right here, which you can still see the remains of the foundation, that room, do you see that big room to the side? on the palace right here. This room right here is where they, all, this is where Paul was kept prisoner for two years at the end of Acts. It was in the praetorium, in the palace. So Paul was locked up there. And when Paul appears before all these leaders in the later parts of Acts, he's in that building almost certainly uh, appearing. Before, in fact, Acts tells us it was in the governor's pra praetorium. It was in the palace. It was in this place. So that's the spot where it happened. If you look at the place today, this is where Paul would have been imprisoned, right there where that blue dot is. The upper part of the, of the palace is there. The lower part is here. And the Olympic swimming pool, you can still see the base right there, right there on the ground. And now you can also see uh, the area back there where today's story takes place in the amphitheater. Our own Tyler Williams provided me with, this, with these pictures. Tyler took this picture in the amphitheater a couple years ago. Uh, it has been partly redone, but this is exactly where it stood. And according to history, I will give you why I think this in a moment. Herod Agrippa was standing, as far as we can tell, right where that circle is when he was struck by the angel. I just think that is fascinating. So that's the very spot on earth where Herod was standing when he is struck by an angel uh, and soon after he dies. So with all that in your mind right now, uh, we are going to look at today's passage. I'm just going to read the beginning and the end again. Look at 12.1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also during the days of unleavened bread. Skip down to verse 18. After Peter escapes prison, now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him and with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat on the throne, and delivered an oration to them, and the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. 
Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. There was a commentator that drew something to my attention that I don't know that I would have noticed on my own, but it's how the word king, the Greek word king, is used frequently in this chapter. It bookends both sides. First verse, Herod is called the king, and that Greek word keeps recurring. Later in the chapter, Herod and the king's chamberlain, the king's country, Herod put on his kingly robes, his royal robes. He sat on the throne. They called him a god, not a man. Now, think about this. You've got a story of a prison escape, Peter, and the execution of James in the middle, and on either side, the word king keeps being used for King Herod. And like I mentioned last week, this is a little bit like the boxing ring. You've got King Herod on one side and King Jesus on the other. You've got these two royalties on either side facing off, and Herod has all the power of Rome and the sword and the shackles and the prison. And the church just has prayer and the Lord and His angels on their side. And they are facing off with one another who is going to win, as we talked about last week. But let's look in specifically on what happens in this text today. After Peter escapes, Herod has the guards put to death. He went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. It says, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. What's going on? Well, it's a little difficult because we don't have a lot of details. But here's what we know. Tyre and Sidon, these two port cities on the coast of the Mediterranean, were incredibly economically prosperous because of their trade. Boats would come in, they would make massive trades. This goes back a thousand years before this. Even David and Solomon received uh, wood and timber and great goods from Tyre and Sidon to build the palace and to later build the, the Solomon's temple for the Lord. And so, Tyre and Sidon are known for their economic prosperity, but what they're not so good at is making their own food. They don't focus on the farming, they focus on the trading. And Herod has a tremendous supply of grain from where he is in Israel that he can send and was no doubt trading with these two cities. But they did something that made Herod mad. They got on Herod's bad side. And Herod, in a split moment, was ready, we don't know why, but Herod got mad and he said, okay. I'm shutting down trade with Tyre and Sidon. No more grain and goods for you. You can starve as much as I care. Which is interesting. You know, Herod was the king of the Jews, he thought, and there's a lot of Jews living in Tyre and Sidon, so he doesn't really care who starves. This may have even been during the famine mentioned in chapter 11. There's not a lot of food. So Herod makes this, he shuts down the trade. Tyre and Sidon are not pleased. They don't know what to do. I can tell you, King Herod was quite pleased because now he's got the political power over these incredibly wealthy cities, these incredibly wealthy trading places. He's got the power over them, and I'm sure he is loving this very much. So they are desperate. They're going to starve. They send delegates down to Jerusalem, to, to Caesarea, to the Israel area, and what they do is they find some way to contact Herod, and they say, okay, we got to find his right-hand man. So they find a guy with a name that every young boy wished he was named, Blastus. So Kevin DeYoung said this sermon. Every young boy wished he was named Blastus. So this, this guy's named Blastus. He's the chamberlain. He takes care of a lot of the king's things, trusted personal attendant. 
And they get on the good side of Blastus, and so Blastus gets a good word in with Herod, and they arrange a time to meet in public. And the only place in Caesarea that a large crowd is going to meet here is going to be in that arena that we just looked at, that, that area we just looked at there in Caesarea. So no doubt that's where they appear on this particular morning. And the king shows up in his royal robes, verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them, and they kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, as I'm almost done with my history part, I still have one more segment, and I think this is fascinating. Fascinating. So, I have here on the ground, I have never read this whole book, okay? I want to one day, but I'm not even close. This right here is the complete works of Josephus. Don't get too excited. A spontaneous applause. Um, so Josephus is one of those few uh, first century historians. He was born right around the time of the crucifixion, about 37 AD, lived past 100 AD. He was a Pharisee. When the Jewish war happened with Rome in the late 60s AD, he fought against Rome, and then when he realized they were going to lose, he said, I'm no fool, I'm going to switch sides. So he switched to the side of Rome, and then he went back to Rome and lived there and spent the rest of his life in luxury writing histories about the Jews. And he is one of the only uh, first century histories we have of the Israel region, and it is an incredibly valuable resource. This man, this is very important, was not a believer in Jesus. He was a Jewish man, a Pharisee. He did not believe in Jesus, although he does mention Jesus, the so-called Christ, twice in these works. He also mentions James, the brother of Jesus, and his execution in the 60s, a lot of valuable stuff. But this is just one of those fascinating excerpts, and I've got to read it to you at length because it's one of those rare moments where a specific strange moment in the Bible is exactly talked about by a non-Christian historian from the same time Luke was writing. That's just amazing. So listen to the same scene described from a different source, non-Christian, describing Herod's death. Because listen, if in this church, the Bible is our authority. If Josephus blatantly contradicted the Bible, I would go with the Bible, not Josephus, right? Can I get an amen on that? I, I'm not, I'm not hit, hanging anything of my hopes for eternity on Josephus. But it is nice when a friend comes alongside and confirms what the Bible says, which is what he does here. And I will say this, that a skeptic could hear this story and be like, angels are showing up everywhere, shackles are falling off hands. And then you've got Herod, at the very moment he's being called a god, at the very moment he gets struck down and killed, I could hear a skeptic say, that sounds like mythology. That doesn't sound like history, that sounds like mythology. At the very moment he's claiming to be god, he gets struck down by an angel, that just sounds made up. Well, let a non-Christian from the same time tell you the same story. Josephus writes, now when Agrippa, so we got the same Herod, right? Herod Agrippa, when he had reigned three years over all Judea, this is 44 AD, same as Luke, he came to the city of Caesarea. Does that sound like what Acts 12 said? He went to Caesarea. At which there was a festival, and a great multitude got together of the principal persons. Big crowd. On the second day of which shows, he put on a garment made wholly of silver. Royal garments. I mean, this is amazing. And of contexture, truly wonderful, and came into the theater. So he says it happened in the amphitheater. He came into the theater early in the morning. Now, he would be facing toward the sunrise in that theater on the stage. At which time, the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. 
And presently his flatterers in the crowd cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. Amazing confirmation of the Bible. And they added, the crowd, be merciful to us, for although we have up till now reverenced you only as a man, yet we shall from now on own thee as superior to mortal nature. The voice of a god and not a man, right? Upon this the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. He was basking in it. He was loving this. I am glad someone finally admires my speaking abilities, Herod is thinking. This is great. The voice of a god. But as he presently afterwards looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was the messenger of ill tidings. A severe pain also arose in his belly and began in the most violent manner. Right in that moment, he's struck with pain in his gut. He falls over, grabbing his lower stomach. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a God, am commanded presently to depart from this life. While providence, speaking of the Jewish God in some sense, while providence thus reproves the lying words you have just now said to me, and I, who was by you called immortal, am immediately to be hurried away by death. When he had said this, his pain had become violent. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace. Remember, the palace is right next door. He was carried from the amphitheater into the palace. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace, and the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die in a short time. Now, the king rested in a high chamber, the second story of the back of his palace. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the 54th year of his age and the seventh year of his reign, for he reigned four years under Gaius... Uh, Caligula Caesar, three of whom were over Philip's tetrarchy only, and the fourth he had uh, Herod's added to it as well. Now, I I just want to say, if if you're a skeptic listening to this or here in this room and you're not a Christian, just for a second, just let this sit on you for a moment. Just think about this. In both accounts, it's Herod Agrippa heading from Jerusalem back to Caesarea. In both accounts, he appears before a large crowd wearing royal garbs, royal robes. In that moment, they are overwhelmed by his oratory. They want to flatter him. They call him a god, not a man. In the very moment he's receiving the praise and not rebuking it and soaking it in, in that very moment he bends over and grabs his stomach. He goes into immense pain and he gets rushed back to the palace and dies five days later. Now, do you see what looked like a skeptic could say that sounds like mythology? In the very moment he's being praised, he's struck down. Non-Christian history says that's exactly what happened. The only difference being you have an angel in the Bible and you have an owl in Josephus' account, but in both cases you have some kind of omen, and in that very moment he is struck down. Now, I will just tell you, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. We can confirm so many of the things Luke said through archaeology and history that it is mind-blowing. Dozens of cities and rulers and kings, governors and islands and port cities, traveling times and distances, seasonal weather, what it might be like on the Mediterranean versus the Sea of Galilee versus the, the, the other areas. Luke, over and over and over, gets his facts right. He knows that uh, there's a sycamore tree when Zacchaeus needs to find a place to get. And that's where, guess where sycamore trees are? They're in Jericho, just like it's, I mean, just on and on and on and on. The details come out as being right. And so I want to say, if he gets names right, details right, even the strange-sounding death of Herod, if he gets it blow for blow right in the details, we can trust this man. 
Now, I don't trust the Bible because non-Christians confirm it. I trust the Bible because I believe it is the self-authenticating Word of God, and I don't need confirmatory sources. But we have hundreds of confirmatory sources that come along as friends and say, you can trust what this book is telling you. You can take it to the bank. You can trust your life and eternity on this book. It will not fail you because what God has written is true. The historical part of the sermon has come to an end. Now I want to move into some theology and some application for all of us uh, right now as we think about our life today. Let's look again at 22 through 24. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Medical experts have said multiple things could be happening. He may have had, in fact, he certainly had parasites living in his body. These could have been uh, tapeworms, something like that, which can, you don't want to know this, but they can get up to 30 feet long in the human body. Uh, And he no doubt had that from eating infected meat or something like that earlier. And that may have been what caused his death. Other doctors speculate that he had, not only did he have parasites living in his stomach and in his intestines, but also he may have had appendicitis. His appendix may have burst, and that may have been what caused the sudden pain. And those two things together may have been what actually killed him. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us he died five days later. He just said he died, but he doesn't give us a time factor. He died apparently a few days afterwards in his palace. Now, what are we to learn from this? I, I don't know about you, but the praise of man, it has to be one of the deepest, most prevalent idols in the human heart and in our human nature. I don't know what else is deeper than the praise of man. John's gospel is shot through with this theme. They loved, they believed in Jesus in their head, some of the Sanhedrin people, but they did not confess Him publicly because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And I was thinking again about how moved I am. Hold your spot here and turn to the left to John the Baptist because he is one of the great examples in all the Bible of a humble person. John chapter 1, here is someone who the Lord had no doubt disciplined John in those many years that he was being trained and reaching the age of 30 when he really, or his late 20s when he began his ministry. John the Baptist, throughout those teenage and early 20 years, must have gone through deep discipline by the Lord to help weed out a lot of this sin in his own life, and he became so mature in his faith that he was able to talk like this. This is not the Herod attitude. This is, we, we need to be like John the Baptist, not like Herod. Look at John 1.19. This is just beautiful testimony. John was famous when this was written. And this is the testimony of John, John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Talk about yourself. Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah has said. No, no, just this is beautiful. John is legitimately famous. 
Remember, all of Jerusalem had gone to see him and be baptized. This is tens of thousands of people are talking about John. And they, the Pharisees send out their leaders, their delegates, ask them, whose authority, who's, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Talk about yourself, John. Tell us about you. And John won't do it. Who are you? I am not the Christ. Are you Elijah? I am not. A prophet? No. I remember one pastor saying his answers keep getting shorter. <laughs> I'm not the Christ. I'm not. No. I'm kind of tired of talking about me. Let's move on to something more substantial. And he turns the subject. If you want me to talk about myself, here's what I'll say. I am nothing but a voice. As one pastor said, I'm not the point. I'm a pointer. I'm not drawing attention to me. I'm drawing attention to Jesus. And you look here at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, now I've got something to talk about. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Not that John might be revealed, that Jesus might be revealed. Verse 34, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And flip over to chapter 3 of John. I love this part. This is John's last moment in John's gospel, verse 25. Now a discussion, this is John 3, 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, Jesus, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John, you're losing fame. They're going to Jesus. They're leaving you. They're going to him. Aren't you concerned? Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I said... I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears Him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is beautiful character of a person. John says, I am like the best man at the wedding, I'm there in the morning, making sure everything is perfect for the wedding. And I hear the groom's voice, and the bride comes, and the bride and groom come together, and the best man just walks out the door to be forgotten, goes around the corner, gets out of the limelight, the bride and groom take center stage, everyone has come and gathered, everyone's looking at the bride and groom, everyone's thinking about them, photographing them, which is absolutely right. And John says, I have the joy not of being the point, not of being the center of tension, not of relishing my moment in the spotlight. John says, I had a moment in the light to point people to Jesus. And when the groom came, Jesus, and I put his hand in arm with the church and I brought them together, Christ, people in Christ, brought them together, I am happy to disappear off the scene. May his ministry increase and my ministry decrease. I have the joy of leading Christ people to Christ. And if as believers we could say, I don't want the glory, I want the joy of not being the focus. I want the joy of people looking through me, past me, beyond me to Jesus, and I want the joy of bringing the bride and groom together and then just getting lost. 
preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten, right? That old quote. I I don't want to be the center of attention. I want Jesus as the center. May He increase. May the focus be on Jesus. May, in the way that I use my money, my time, my conversations, may the spotlight be on Jesus and loving others well. Let us not, and I am talking to myself, let us not angle for glory, for praise. Let us not try to say things that bring about things that might be fishing for compliments for ourselves in whatever way we want them. You know what it's like, right? You host something at your house and you work really hard and you're kind of not getting a lot of appreciation, so you kind of start asking questions to get a little bit of, come on, give me something. I worked hard. Give me some praise. Now, now let, let me just say right here before I get carried away with this point, we should encourage one another in the faith. It is not wrong. In fact, it is godliness to point out evidences of grace in other people. That is, a, that, is a, that is the mark of a healthy soul, to look at someone and say, I can see the Lord has grown you in your love of God's Word. The Lord has grown you in your dedication to prayer. The Lord has grown you in your love of a local church and your commitment to the body of Christ locally. The Lord has grown you in your knowledge. The Lord has grown you in your service. I see it and I praise God for that. That is not wrong. We need to be a church that encourages one another every day as the day draws near. At the same time, when we receive praise, when we receive compliments, you know, there's two extremes. One is going, no, no, I'm just absolutely terrible. I am just awful. Someone says, you did a great job. You say, no, it was, it was the worst job, actually. It was a terrible job. Because that is not humility. When someone compliments you for your ability to sing or play an instrument or your ability to host or your ability to be eloquent or your ability to write well or your ability to do whatever, there's 10,000 things. You could be a, a great artist or a great engineer or a great whatever it may be. When someone sees God's grace in your life and thanks you and, 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 and brings honor to that, Don't say, no, I'm just awful, because you know what that does? It forces them to redouble their compliments. Oh, no, you were really good. Oh, no, tell me more. (laughs) We don't want to be like that. So we don't want to play this kind of fake humility of saying, no, I'm just absolutely terrible. The Lord has gifted all of us in this room. You know, the, the eye can't say to the ear, I have no need of you. We all have gifts to contribute to the body of Christ. Some of them are more visible, some are less visible, some are more known, some are less known, but all the parts are indispensable. And when someone points out God's grace in your life, I hope it rather moves you at the mercy of Jesus to you than makes you swell up with pride at how great you may think you are. You see the difference? To, to take that moment where someone sees something real in you and say, Thank you, Lord, for the transformation you've wrought, the gift you've given. Praise your name. Let glory be back to you and and, and accept it with thanksgiving and and move on. But John finds his greatest joy in bringing attention to Jesus. That's what he's all about. That's what makes John happy to move out of the limelight and to center everyone's attention on the Lamb of God. Back with me, if you can, to Acts chapter 12. Just two chapters earlier, Peter faces something similar. You know, Peter also, remember Cornelius was in Caesarea, same town? Peter showed up in Caesarea and so did Herod, but they had quite different situations. I'm borrowing this from a commentator, but listen to the differences between Herod and Peter as they both come to the same city just a few, uh, a couple years apart. Herod travels from Jerusalem to Caesarea, so does Peter. Herod kills some of his soldiers in this story in Caesarea, Peter is rather prepared to die at the hands of some soldiers to get the gospel to others. 
Herod treats Gentiles arrogantly with anger and is reluctant to share food with them, Tyre and Sidon. Peter treats Gentiles humbly and gladly and even eats with them. Herod accepts pagan worship in Caesarea. Peter rejects pagan worship in Caesarea, remember? Cornelius bows down when Peter comes in, and Peter says, I'm a man like you. Get back up. Don't give me that kind of praise. That's only for God. The Lord's angel strikes Herod in judgment, and that same word strike, the Lord's angel struck Peter and awoke him in the, in the prison and delivered him from Herod. See, Peter learned a lot of things from Jesus. Now, this, this list here I adapted from a pastor, but I added a number of thoughts to this as well. And I want you to compare and contrast, not Peter and Herod, but King Jesus and King Herod. Listen to these words. I'm going to take a few moments on this. How are King Herod and King Jesus different? King Herod grasped at deity. King Jesus was deity, yet did not count equality with God, something to be grasped. King Herod caused his enemies to suffer at his hands. King Jesus allowed himself to suffer at the hands of his enemies. King Herod strolled into town in royal robes decked in silver. King Jesus came into the world poor, helpless, wrapped in strips of linen, and was laid in a feeding trough for animals. King Herod clothed himself in a royal robe to impress others. King Jesus was clothed in royal robes to be mocked by others. King Herod no doubt wore a crown of glory, but King Jesus a crown of thorns. King Herod stood before a large crowd and was praised as a god. King Jesus stood before a large crowd and was mocked as a blasphemer, spit upon, and condemned to be crucified. King Herod was struck down by an angel for his many sins and got exactly what he deserved. King Jesus, far worse, was struck down by God Himself for our many sins and got exactly what you and I deserve. King Herod stole glory from God was eaten by worms and died. King Jesus gave all glory to God the Father, died in our place, and was raised on the third day, never seeing corruption. King Herod was brought down to the grave. King Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God with an incorruptible resurrection body. Today, King Herod's palace is long gone and the foundations are barely visible, but also today, King Jesus is seated on His eternal throne, reigning over heaven and earth. Who do you want to be more like? Do you want to be like those of this world that are always angling for attention, praise, admiration, and glory for our accomplishments? Or are we willing to genuinely lay down our rights and privileges, serve one another joyfully, not care who gets the credit, wash the feet of the saints, metaphorically do menial tasks of service, and want all glory and honor in our life to reflect back to the glory of our one and only Savior, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You that in Your Son, our King, Christ Jesus, our Lord, we have one who was willing to leave heaven for earth, to go from a royal palace surrounded by angels above to 
being laid in the feeding trough of animals. We have one who was praised by all in heaven and was then ignored by most on earth, was hated, despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and familiar with grief and suffering and pain. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were humble and that you stumbled to your throne on a cross, carrying the wood on your back, and that as you were hoisted up onto that tree on Golgotha, above your head was written by Pilate, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The King of the Jews is not decked in silver and royal garments like Herod. The King of the Jews is bloodied, mocked, beaten, wearing a crown of thorns. The King on the cross, the King who stoops to serve His people, the King who suffers in the place of rebels, blasphemers, people who hate one another and hate you like us. And you've interposed your blood, forgiven your people of our many, many sins, and now you have clothed us in garments much costlier than Herod's, the robes of Jesus' righteousness. We stand complete, accepted, chosen in Christ, loved, reconciled, at peace with God. If while we were still enemies, Christ died for us, how much more now that we are your beloved children will you do all that we need to help us to know you and to live with you forever in eternity. God, help us to die daily to the love of human glory and help us to awaken daily to your superior glory. Reading from Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. God, may that be true in our heart. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness because you are in the heavens and you do what you please. Help us to find greater joy in your glorification than in our glorification. Help us to find greater excitement and happiness and fulfillment in your name being promoted 
drawn attention to and made much of in this church and in the world and help us to be with a holy indifference, uncaring about our own personal glory. Help us with John the Baptist to say, he must increase and I must decrease. Give us the joy of humility and the joy of exalting our Lord and Savior. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.